All right, welcome everybody. Thirsty Thursday, number 35, High Rise Operations. Uh, Bobby had the opportunity to go down to uh, HROC in Pensacola uh, with uh, Chief Isaacson's um, series of, of conferences that they put on. It's a great opportunity. Um, so if you guys ever get a chance, make sure you take him, take advantage of that. Um, today, we're just going to talk a little bit about high rise operations and then Bobby's experience down there and maybe some of the things that he took away from that. Um, so just as a as a heads up, this is a pre-recorded show like we did for Thanksgiving. So um, we appreciate you guys tuning in and thanks for, for everybody that's working tomorrow night on Christmas Eve or wait today, Christmas Eve, Eve. Um, so thanks for those tuning in tonight. Uh, we hope you guys have a safe shift and uh, enjoy the show. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, Bob, you want you want to start talking a little bit about your experience at HROC? Uh, sure. First of all, Merry Christmas, everybody. And um, uh, the wife is uh, cooking up a storm for her family coming over later on the day. And the dog's running around. They're installing gas lines all at the same time. So um, so. We might have disruptions, but that's just kind of how the world works here, I guess. Uh, I really enjoyed going down to high, the High Rise Conference. Um, you know, Kurt Isaacson is just a class act. He's just, um, he really gets it. He's very passionate about what we do. And all the people that are assembled down there are passionate about what they do. And he's developed a, a, a list of instructors down there that have been to multiple high rise fires. Uh, firefighter fatalities in them, civilian fatalities in them, and things like that. So certainly um, getting a perspective from Chicago and New York and uh, and uh, Oakland and all those other places is, is always um, really helpful because you, you have people with real-world um, experience, you know, talking about it. So I want to just qualify real quick. Um, we had lots of discussion down there about hose size. That's a big thing right now. There's new... A two and a quarter inch hose out and there's a two inch hose out which is what we opted for in ocean city and so i kind of wanted to qualify um what they were talking about down there um there was nobody in the group that was teaching that that endorsed or encouraged anything less than a two inch size hand line. um and so i think it's fair to explain why that is because you know inch and three quarter or inch and a half is a much more maneuverable hand line um, and, and I will talk a little bit more about some of the things that happened in New York when they went to the two inch, uh, interesting from a truck company perspective, what that changed for them in high rise fires. Um, so with that being said, the, the reason is, um, there's two big standards out there for high rise, unless you have local jurisdictional standards, like say Las Vegas has their own, but the, the national standards are a pre-1993 and post-1993. So what that standard requires for your standpipes is it requires, in pre-1993, it required 65 PSI at your uppermost floor um, or your furthest outlet, however you want to put that, okay? Uh, the the post-1993 required 100 PSI at your standpipe. So the reason that the smaller diameter hose is challenging for that is that uh, we can only pump, most standpipes, we can only pump up to about 200 PSI from a rig. Um, so um, that 65 PSI is actually a limiting factor because we can't over pump it. Because uh, in Ocean City, we've had failed standpipes, and that, that is a horrible way to run a high rise fire because um, those standpipes are all interconnected. Um, when you fail that standpipe system, you are incredibly behind the eight ball. 
So we don't want to do that. So we try to stay within a 200 PSI. So what that means is if you had 200 feet of inch and three quarter inch and a half hose on your rig, um, you would assume and have anywhere between 16 to 30 PSI per hundred feet of friction loss. And so if you had 200 feet, that would, let's just do the 30 for easy numbers. You would have 60 PSI of friction loss. And then you have to add your nozzle, which the lowest nozzles um, that we see out there are 50 PSI rated. Um, those, some people do get away with 40 in some situations, but typically it's uh, 50 PSI to hundred PSI is pretty much the range of all the nozzles we have out there that, that I'm aware of in, in the United States. So obviously if we did 60 PSI for friction loss, we only have 65 PSI available. We only have five PSI left for the nozzle. So we would have to have on a smoothbore nozzle, for instance, either seven eighths or a 15 sixteenths, we would have to have a, um, we would have to have a, a pressure of uh, 110. So even the new post-1993 standard, when you get in the higher levels of those buildings, um, you may not have it. Um, everyone's heard of the Meridian Plaza fire in Philadelphia. Uh, that was an example of where uh, it was a challenge was pressure reducing and pressure restricting devices. I guess we could talk about it a little bit later what those are and why they're there. Um, but they had a challenge with that. But in reality, the actual challenge was a small diameter hose with a low pressure system. And that's kind of the challenge. So lots of conversation about a two, two and a quarter, uh, two and a half. And I'll talk about it in a minute. I'm just going to, I just want to kind of give you a promo, a premium, uh, what I say, preview. That's it. <laughs> a preview of kind of um, what the thought process is. Um, and then we can actually have a little conversation later. If we have time, I could talk about the different high rise pack configurations between uh, New York, Chicago, uh, Miami, um, you know, we, we kind of went through all and deployed all those types of different um, hose loads and things like that. So that's just the very beginning of it. So, um, if, Ben, if you want to walk around and kind of introduce everybody and then we'll keep moving. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks, Bobby, for the, the intro. Um, as Bobby kind of alluded to, the high rise operations are extremely dangerous. Um, you know, if we're if you're operating on you know, a regular residential uh, single family dwelling, you know, your, event, your option to get out of that building quickly, um, you, you've got lots of ways to do that. You take that, that, that compartment and you put it 20 floors in the sky. Now, when you go to get out of that building quickly, like it, it's, it's drastically different. So everything, um, you know, that, that we look at as far as our single family dwellings, um, and even commercial structures, when you move it up that high into the sky, it makes it, like I said, a lot more difficult, including, um, you know, the air packs that we that you're using, you know, the cylinder ratings, the length of time that you get to use them, getting your tools there, your hose, your water supply, all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you go beyond the length or the reach of your, your aerials. So it's just a lot more to consider. So um, that's why it's something to have high rise ops is something to have a very good grasp of and to be proficient with. So Trevor, you want to kick in and, and talk a little bit about, uh, your experiences and your thoughts on high rise structures. Sure. Ben, appreciate it. Uh, first of all, Merry Christmas, everybody, and uh, wish everybody a safe and healthy and prosperous new year. Uh, for those of you who either remember or celebrate Festivus today is Festivus. So we'll start with the airing of grievances. Uh, and then we'll go into feats of strength. Uh, anyway, yeah, as, as Ben and Bobby had said, there's a lot of challenges to high-rise firefighting, and there's a lot of thought processes. And I do uh, firmly believe that the HROC conference and the people that put that on 
uh, you know, really put a lot of the hyperbole aside and look at what we can legitimately accomplish. And I will say that a lot of times our SOPs, SOGs are somewhat lofty in what they feel we can accomplish. And that's not to say that we can't accomplish great things, but even here locally, uh, there's been a, a major transition from you know, the second engine shall do, the first truck, second truck, third truck shall do, because we really don't know in what order they're going to be arriving, because sometimes that's not up to us, despite what our running card says and what dispatch says. So it's gone more to a priority basis that when, uh, and most departments, uh, you know, some notwithstanding, most departments are going to need help on a high-rise fire. In Ocean City, when we were there, when we had a working high-rise fire, it was a y'all come alarm. We had people coming from out of state, uh, you know, across the bridges. And so it wasn't handled by a single department, regardless of the amount of resources and personnel that we had. Um, you know, we had to reach out. And of course, you know, that drains resources from the rest of your city and calls are still going on at the same time. So uh, we went more to priority basis so that uh, if I can say my top pro five priorities are this, when a next due company comes in, I can say, hey, we've got numbers one through three done. Now we got to pick up with four and five and we're all on the same page. And unlike uh, a private dwelling, like you were talking about, Ben, it's a long time before we were able to get to work. I mean, I'm not talking about our turnout time, but when we arrive at a, at a, a private dwelling, we're stretching a line across the front yard, across the uh, driveway, whatever the case is. And we're pretty much expected to start making a knockdown relatively quickly unless we have exigent circumstances such as hoarding or Collier's Mansion, whatever the case is. Something's on the 25th floor. We still haven't gotten to work yet. Even though we've arrived at the location, it's going to be a while before we get up there, assuming that the elevators are working. If they're not working, uh, you were still going through our protocol and we're going for a, a you know, 25-story uh, vertical hike. So in all this time, you know, regardless of whether it's a sprinkler building, conditions are going to change. You know, what have we done to try to make the best of this and you know, increase the possibility for the best life, safe, life safety protection we have, get as many people out of the building as possible, but also looking at the construction features of, of all the high-rises and the era in which they were built. Um, most of these are concrete ovens that have some drywall thrown up in between on aluminum studs. Uh, like we saw at, I'm trying to remember which building it was now, I want to say it was the uh, Century One and also the Braemar uh, there in Ocean City, for example, where people would do some midnight renovation and all of a sudden now our fire load is drastically increased on an upper floor with potential wind-driven conditions. And we're going in there, uh, you know, at the time with inch and three-quarter, fortunately that's been upgraded to you know, a minimum of two inch, as Bobby was recommend or saying, or two and a half to get the fire flow. But then we're busting a standpipe on the way up and we're having to drop back and punt. So this is all being done. And Bobby, you remember extensively how we would train with three-person crews, four-person crews. And it wasn't a matter of saying, oh, we're, we're going to marry up um, engine four and the crew from paramedic four, so we'll have six. That's great as long as paramedic four just didn't go on an EMS run and then paramedic three got tapped out. Now our next closest marrying unit to make up those extra uh, people on that first line crew are coming from 80 blocks away. So, you know, again, kind of focusing on what are your immediate priorities? What do you know about the building? Uh, you know, what is your familiarization of, of getting people out? But also looking at, um, and I've become much more attuned to this as well, getting in well ahead of time with some of these um, inspectors 
and saying, you know, how often are you actually inspecting these? Are they doing the once a year? Uh, we would bust standpipes fairly regularly in Ocean City, and then we're like, oh, well, this kind of sucks, and having to drop back and punt. So from a pump operator's perspective, you know, we learned to try to gradually increase the pressure in the standpipes versus going full bore because the expectation that we had of the uh, of that protection feature and and realistically our realism were two different things so um yeah i want to want to kick it over to, to mike but that was just kind of my uh you know preliminary comments is to really take a lot of these things in consideration as many similarities as we have to uh private dwelling residential structure firefighting you've got to be able to adapt some of these things and not only adapt, but be able to overcome a lot more obstacles that uh, may be in your way, just like your 360. A lot of people pound in, you know, oh, when you get there, do a 360. I teach my guys, you know, start doing their size up of that building as soon as it can come into view. Because once you're underneath that building, you can't get a good perspective of what's going on. But depending on how they approach, uh, or especially if you're in a battalion buggy or a uh, command buggy, I'll go around the other side of the building and they think I'm the lost patrol. They're like, Hey chief, um, it's back here. Yeah, I get that. But I'm coming up on the South side, looking at that. I, I see the West side and then I pull around to the North side. I've gotten three views of the building before I even got out of my buggy. And then, you know, I can walk around to the East side or like in ocean city where a lot of those um, larger structures, the, the Charlie side or actually the alpha side was facing the beach. It's, it's not an improved road. It's not anything you can access with a vehicle or a piece of apparatus. So trying to maintain that crew integrity for your first in piece of apparatus and you having them with the horse blinders on saying, okay, you, the engine company officer, whomever has to do a 360, you might not see him for a while because it's, it's a hike. So you have to be able to modify what we're used to and uh, you know, try to put in some common sense uh, and legitimate time saving. I don't, I don't really like calling them shortcuts, but put in, put in some efforts that you get the most bang out of what you're trying to do. Uh, and you're the most efficient and you can get to work as soon as possible. Make sure you get as, uh, as many people out of the building as possible uh, you know, before we start the operation. So with that, um, Mike, let me kick it over to you while you're doing the drive home. Or not. Well, well, while Mike's rebooting, um, let, let's discuss, you know, Mike uh, would be a, a great asset here, um, but he's got, he has a different um, approach in Baltimore City and that, that, that department has a completely different approach than um, I'm guessing the, the departments that we currently serve and work for. So even from Salisbury, where we staff in two engines in a truck, um, Ocean City, we do that with the swing staffing. Hey, Mike, welcome back. Hey, sorry about that. I think I was going through a dead spot. Am I broken up or can you hear me clearly? No, you're good. You're good. Um, we were just, I was just kind of leading into, um, and I, I was kind of curious your thoughts on, um, Trevor had mentioned the kind of the staffing and pulling resources from all over the place. And um, your experience in Baltimore City is clearly much different than, than some of the experiences that we've had. So, um, if you would, if you want to kind of include that in, in your thoughts of high-rise stuff. Did you hear me, Mike?
I think Elvis has left the building. God damn it, man. Come on. <laughs> so glad this is editable. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, why don't I cover like um, um, the different uh, dry versus wet stretches here and yeah. stuff like that real quick while we're getting him back online. So, um, so uh, one of the things I thought was we had lots of conversations. Trevor can remember this from when he was up in Ocean City, and there's lots of conversations across the country about dry stretches uh, versus wet stretches. Um, and there's a legitimacy to both of those techniques in, 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 in my mind. Um, and so there's a question about when in the presence of a high rise, what does, what does that mean? So the gist of what we got at the high rise conference was the two different fire conditions that are normal um, in a high rise is the apartment door is closed or the apartment door is open. So, so the way we approach, um, so the, so the way we approach the, um, the open door is that the hallway is now part of the fire unit. So when you're, when you're, when you're talking about, um, when you're talking about, um, sorry about the dogs, you got people on gas lines. Um, so when we're talking about that, that specific scenario, that room is in our, in our town is 300 feet long. Um, so it's a tremendously large room. And I'll, I'll cover why that's important later on with the different size uh, uh, nozzle tips and things like that that you would consider using in high rise because we tested a whole lot of that stuff, including stream reach. But um, so the big difference is if you have the apartment door closed, we consider it controlled. If the apartment doors not not closed that we consider it uncontrolled so that is a big indicator across the country about whether or not you would do a wet or a dry stretch so if they opened up and had really bad conditions and it appeared that the uh, that usually means that the apartment door is open or it's actually started in that hallway so um some of the larger metropolitan areas have problems with people lighting fires in hallways and stairwells and things like that um so that's also something that could happen but at any rate either way that is going to be a fire room and so we don't want to go into our actual fire rooms with dry lines for everyone. That makes perfect sense to everybody probably. So you can do a wet stretch versus a dry set. So a dry stretch is a very simple stretch. You go to the apartment door, it's closed. Uh, you pull tail out, you're working length. Um, and, you know, you're working length for, for our, in our situation is you, it's almost always 50 feet. We'll do everything we need inside of that unit. Um, and uh, everything else is a dry stretch too there. So you can kind of get there pull your tail out and then we go ahead and force the door or they could force the door while we're getting it ready, but pull the door closed and, and continue that door control. Um, a wet stretch. Uh, I can tell you that uh, uh, all the major metropolitan departments that represented a high rise conference, um, they've all gone back to stretching from the floor below. Uh, Miami never really left it. And I don't think Denver ever really left it. Uh, so um, the, what does that benefit? Well, we do a stairwell stretch in ocean cities where we teach our guys but there's a tremendous problem with kinking when you do that, um, especially when you get to your lower pressures and things like that. So it's a very big of a challenge, and we'll talk about tips later on, and I'll explain some more about that. Uh, but the difference between the, 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 the stretch from the floor below and the stairs is if you stretch from the floor below, uh, the kinking is minimal. Um, you know, as people advance the lineup, there's people in every corner, and they advance the lineup. So the good news is the kinking is at a minimum. And that line moves fairly quickly and efficiently. Uh, the bad news is it takes about nine people to make that be an efficient stretch. 
uh, with four people, it stops for periods of time when you got to go grab and pull the line up or do your do your, your rolling your hose or whatever you particularly do. It all requires a stop. Uh, so there um, they were doing with at least eight people and they actually preferred to actually have uh, more people. So the, the floor below is, is actually is pretty valid. They've all gone to more of a 150 foot stretch scenario. Um, in Ocean City, we're a 200 foot stretch scenario. I guess we could revisit that. However, we have some pretty long hallways and some of our high rises only have um, stairwells on either end. And so if we had, a, we got to measure it out. If it's 150 feet to the middle apartment, we're going to have to have 200 feet and, and continue to do that just for our situation. Uh, their situation, um, they have tighter buildings, smaller apartments, you know, things like that. So they're going, so uh, Miami uses two seventy-five foot sections of hose to do that, accomplish that. Um, everybody else that I know of uh, was using 50 foot sections of hose to kind of get there. Um, so uh, interestingly, and I'll turn it over to Mike again. I think he's got a good connection now. Uh, interestingly, De- Denver, um, who David McGrail is arguably one of the most uh, for- forward thinking people in the high rise firefighting in the, in the fire service currently. Um, you know, he, he talked about uh, in, in Denver, uh, they took away all unit designations like trucks and engines. And essentially, the only thing they left a unit designation for in a high-rise fire was a squad. And that squad's job was to go up the stairs and save rescue people in the stairs because has been a tremendous loss of life in high-rise stairs uh, over the years. So they have a crew assigned to simply go all the way up the stairs uh, to find people stuck in the stairs. But all those other units, the reason they don't have unit identification uh, identifiers on them, like Normally you have, you know, truck three and engine 16 or whatever. The reason they don't is because every single person is required to get that line to the fire. So they take every bit of manpower they have to get that line to the door uh, to control the fire. And then they expand off of that. And then they do their, their searches and their things like that. Um, just because they do four person staffing out there. Um, so it's, it's a challenge all the time. If you lose a pump operator because you do normal household, op, you know, like single story house operations, then you only have three people. If you're a three person crew, you only have two people. And they, they had that same situation. So that's how they kind of threw people. Out. I thought that was really kind of interesting because we've tried to acknowledge that we have to do search and rescue simultaneously with um, uh, engine company operations. But in this particular instance, there's so many people's lives at risk that that quick search, it needs to be done after we get that hose line in a place where we can kind of control that fire to the rest of the building. So that was kind of interesting. So Mike, you look like you got a good signal here. Um, ben was just asking about, uh, you know, we have a very limited staffing um, in our world, our worlds, I guess we could say, uh, but Baltimore and some of the urban departments have a, a whole different level of staffing. Can you, you talk about your staffing levels and what you guys throw at a, at a high rise fire in Baltimore city for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, real quick, I just want to say Merry Christmas to you guys. Uh, I didn't get a chance before because right as I, I went to a dead spot right as my moment came up. But uh, Merry Christmas, guys, and uh, Merry Christmas to everybody that's watching. Uh, and to those of you that are working uh, Christmas Eve, uh, stay safe. And uh, I know how that feels. It's uh, always lousy to be away from loved ones on Christmas Eve. But uh, everyone uh, out here appreciates what you're doing. But, uh, yeah, so jumping, jumping right in, uh, last night, uh, this actually, the timing couldn't be better. Last night uh, we had a high-rise fire, and, and that was contained to just the kitchen. So uh, we were able to uh, suppress that pretty quickly. But 
uh, all the major components that you would associate with a high-rise fire came into play. And uh, starting from uh, going through the front doors, now the, the fire was on the third floor and it was a 12-story building. So when we uh, reached the third floor, of course, we took the stairs. Uh, that's, our, that's our policy and, and our SOGs. Um, but we took the stairs to get there. Uh, but as we were coming in, the doorways, uh, you, you initially had your, out, uh, your exterior doors, which are, uh, uh, they're, they're fab locks. So you have to have that key fob in order to get through them. And then once you get into that vestibule to get to the lobby, there is another set of locking doors in which we uh, had to get a fob for as well. So because of that complication, we ended up chalking both of those doors open. Um, and anyone that knows uh, the least little bit about flow path when it comes to high rises is those doors, especially when you have that vestibule there, that is uh, set up for the pressurization of the building. So what we quickly found is that um, uh, you know, normally we, we would throw five engines and two truck companies immediately at, at this. But it came out as a tactical, uh, which only gets two engines and a truck. So when we arrived and saw smoke coming out of the third floor window, uh, we upgraded it right away. But uh, as you've already alluded to, uh, you guys have talked about previously, uh, you know, today is that if you don't get everyone there and get things moving, you're automatically behind the eight ball. And you are anyway because of time. So all those companies, uh, started coming, uh, but we were all, we had already been there for uh, for a couple minutes. So the setup gets uh, gets a little bit difficult. So once we reached the third floor, um, unfortunately we we ended up having to force the door to the to the apartment. And when we did, the door got left open, and that immediately filled the entire floor. Uh, and it almost happened within about ten seconds. Now, the, this happens, of course, because people are opening and closing their doors as they're exiting the building, but it also, a contributing factor to this was the fact that we had chalked open the doors downstairs. So you've created the flow path, uh, which obviously when we refer to high-rise uh, and you, and you uh, jeopardize any pressurization, we're talking about stack effect. So we, uh, you know, th that entire third floor filled up within under a minute uh, you could almost not see. Uh, and now we were able to get a knock on it quickly and, uh, and door control came into play very, uh, very fast, especially when uh, a couple of us got up there that are used to dealing with that sort of thing, because not all your companies that are converging are used to training in high rises. And that's something to keep in mind too. And just like in ocean city, you know, a lot of our high rises are in one certain area. So, you know, you want the companies, you want everyone to be proficient, but uh, especially the companies that are that are dealing with that on a daily basis, um, and even in your major metropolitan areas, not everyone is is kind of uh, specialized and, and up to par on that forward thinking of what to do in a high rise. So you know, even with us, uh, even as many as we have downtown, uh, there's only a couple downtown companies per se, and those companies lend themselves to understanding the nuances of of high rise fires. But uh, you know. Teaching everyone else on site doesn't happen. So you get complications as, as apartment doors get left open, 
uh, as in what happened last night where the door got left open for a period of maybe 15 seconds, but it was enough to choke out the entire third floor. Um, it was also enough to uh, fill the seventh floor completely with smoke. Uh, and now, you know, people will say, well, why did that happen and it not go to 12? And, you know, uh, the understand, understanding stack effect and understanding that the elevators were going to seven. For some reason, there was a, a large number of people that were exiting on seven. And so your elevator shafts are being opened and your doorways up there from your staircases are being opened. So seven was completely full of smoke, too. And that all happened within a period of under 60 seconds of our arrival. So, uh, you know, it, the takeaway from all this is, is that even in a even in a major city where you're used to dealing with these high rises, at least companies are certain companies, um, things go wrong. And. Sometimes they just go wrong by dispatch, where you're only throwing a couple companies at it right away and then realizing, uh-oh, um, this is a bigger deal than what we thought. We should have dispatched everyone. And um, so then you're already, you know, it, you're already having some difficulty getting ahead, get down ahead of this. Uh, so I found it interesting. You know, we, you guys discussed this a few minutes ago, uh, right before I lost the signal, that um, you know, what, what you said, Bobby, that Denver is starting to do. And, um, and Trevor, you alluded to some, some issues um, that, that, that you've noticed in the sense of not only are we, uh, are, are we kind of lofty in our goals of, about how we're going to manage these issues, but, uh, you know, one of the biggest, I, I think one of the largest problem is, is that unless you're in an area that sees a lot of high-rise, mid-rise issues, uh, such as you know F FDNY, you really kind of take strategies from other cities and just throw that against the wall for yours and hope that it sticks. Uh, because the frequency and, of course, the reps aren't there for, for most of us. And uh, that is a dangerous thing to do uh, because I think a lot of times we, we see what other places do and then we're like, yeah, we'll try that. And the we'll try that actually becomes the standard for us instead of actually putting it into practice, trying five things, see which one of them works the best. Uh, we just pick one that seems applicable and then that becomes our MOP or our SOG. And uh, I think a lot of times we don't take into account you know, well, you know, FDNY might do something, but they have a manpower complement that far surpasses anything that most jurisdictions can throw at it. Um, and, of course, they, uh, their units that are centralized down there, they actually have equipment that they use uh, that is unique to them versus what other companies have uh, that, that might be coming to help. So, you know, there's a lot of little things that play into it, and um, I think sometimes – it can be uh, it can be a deadly game of a roulette that we play with that, and uh, you know it's a it's a dangerous thing to do. And um, real quick before I turn it back over to you, Bobby, I, it's I'm intrigued by what Denver is doing. Um, that I I think that that is a uh, a study and and a strategy that maybe other jurisdictions should consider. Um, because I, I can definitely see the 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 immediate benefit to it, so I'll, I'll I'll stop going on and I'll turn it back over to you, Bob. 
Oh, thanks for your insight, Mike, and appreciate you running a high rise gig right before you got on here. <laughs> so, um, it worked yeah, out I, perfect, I talk, man. <laughs> yeah, I want to. I, I actually want to. I want to talk about host size in a minute, but one of the things that I found that that I personally have experience with is uh, maybe about six years ago. Um, I'm a little bit less than four years to my retirement date. And about six years ago, I kind of let myself go a little bit. I wasn't working out like I should have been. I wasn't eating like I should have been, all those types of things. And um, we went to smoke in a high rise. And I only really did about maybe all together, maybe seven flights of stairs and my gear, my equipment. And and I could tell you, I I felt like I was going to die. I just, I felt horrible. And I realized that where I work at, I try to work on the north end of town where the majority of our high rises are anyway. Um, And so I realized that, that, that I couldn't do this. Uh, not being in shape. So thankfully, four years later, I've been able to keep a pretty steady uh, progress with that. And so that's not really kind of an issue for me. So when I start talking about hose sizes, the one thing I think everyone has to remember about high rises is everything's a little bit more difficult than what we're used to. And what I mean by that is you're going to climb more stairs than you normally would in a residential fire. Um, You're going to always find metal doors, at least in our jurisdiction, you're always going to find metal doors that are a little more difficult to force than you would in a residential setting. Um, there's no residential setting. We're going to have to go down a 300 foot hallway. Um, you know, so everything kind of stretches out in high rise firefighting when tactically, once you get to that fire floor and that unit, it's exactly like uh, a residential structure fire for us. And when I speak of this, we don't have any commercial high rises, so I can't really speak on that. I'll let Mike talk about that a little bit later. They're, they're a whole different animal in, in general. So, with that being said, um, there are things in firefighting that require require us to be physically ready to do. Um, you know, if you're not physically ready to pull out a 250-pound victim, then you can't pull out a 250-pound victim. You won't rise to that occasion. Uh, you just won't get it done. Um, if you can't climb, you know, 20 flights of steps uh, without having some kind of medical condition, then you, there's some high-rise fires that you're not going to be able to affect. Um, so, you know, when we talk about these hose sizes, a lot of what happens to the hose size stuff is we tend to really want to focus on getting the smallest size line to get the job done in all of a residential structural firefighting. Um, but a high rise is a different animal. It's kind of like you're only going to get one shot at this thing. So you really want to find out what size line will give you an effective fire flow in a high rise environment that you have enough people to push. And so uh, one of the most interesting perspectives, because we've had big fights, Trevor was involved in it, about whether we'd have inch and three-quarter hose in our high-rise pack or two-and-a-half-inch hose in our high-rise pack. And, of course, the argument always was the maneuverability of that inch and three-quarter hose versus a two-and-a-half-inch hose. And then we argued back about the, the, the high-rise standpipe standard we talked about before. So there was legitimate concerns on both sides. Um, however, when you when you look at, the, the, the different sizes of hose, it has to do with the physical fitness of the people uh, working with it and the effective fire flow. So um, it's, it's hard to describe all of this, but the bottom line is um, you if you want to ride in a fire department and you have any kind of um, commercial structures in a district, you kind of got to be able to stretch a two and a half inch line. Um, if you know, it's just, there's some things that are not so easy in Mike's jurisdiction. I'm sure they have to be a lot stronger with, uh, outward open and commercial style doors because they're just that much more fortified in, in most of your, you know, city operations. So everything's a little bit more difficult. So 
the interesting perspective was Mike Champa, which probably all you guys know, and a great national speaker, uh, works in FDNY, came from D.C., and I forget, he started somewhere else. I can't remember where now. But anyways, uh, Mike's a, he's a student of game, but he's pure truck guy. So he gave this perspective. New York City about, oh, gosh, was it five years ago, Trevor, I think, something like that, maybe longer than that. They did a, a study of using the last section of hose as a two-inch uh, hose. Um, and, and so the engine company guys, you know, um, they have their own perspective about all of that. But when you listen to Mike Champo, he said, listen, I went to a lot of high rises as a truck company and our small tenement apartments. He said, I have some of the best engine companies in the world surrounding me. And they had a hell of a time moving at two and a half inch through those tenement apartments. And he said, instantaneously, as soon as we added that two, two inch section for our residential high rise firefighting, the, the time that, that took them to control the fire was much, much less. So the argument's not as simple as having that 300 gallons per minute in a two and a half inch hose. It depends on your staffing. It depends on whether you can move it, what, what your configurations of your high rises are. There's so many things, um, you know, can you use in our old configuration with two and a half inch, we switched all two inch with two and a half inch couplings, but in our old configuration, we could take a roll out a 50 foot section of inch and three quarter hose. Um, and believe it or not, without changing the standby pressure at all, we could get an adequate stream. At, on any floor um, in, in a high rise with just that one section. Of inch. So there's lots of things to consider in your jurisdictions, uh, your staffing, your manpower and things like that. Um, but it's not so simple to say two and a half inch hose is the best. Um, you know, we took over a year in Ocean City to make a change to our high rise pack system. And that included hours and hours and days and days of stretching two and a quarter inch, two and a two inch with two and a, two inch with two uh, inch and a half couplings two inch with two and a half inch couplings, different nozzle size, things like that. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you, if you go with an inch and three quarter line and you have 150 gallons a minute and you have a 150 foot going down a hallway and the apartment doors open with a wind driven fire, you're not going to win that fight. You may not win it with a two and a half, but you're certainly not going to win it with a smaller line. So you have to consider what kind of high rises you're going to, uh, what your expectations are, but I think Trevor made it best many, many years ago. He talked about it. You really, on a high rise, you have to be a very, very good one-line fire department. Everything else is going to take a tremendous amount of time. So that's kind of the thing about the hose size is, is a whole lot of things. I'll talk about nozzle stuff here in a minute, like later on when you guys have a chance to talk. But I will, I will talk about tips and what we ran into because that was a large conversation uh, down at HROC. And um, we had our own personal uh, experiences with it uh, here in Ocean City, and I'll explain that later on. But uh, let me turn over to you, Trevor, and just talk a little bit about that one-line fire department you talk about. Yeah, and um, I know sometimes I might sound like a broken record with it, but it's something that I do believe in that, um, you know, as goes that first line goes the rest of the fire. And I, between you and Mike, you both have said some really important things about not only adaptations and expectations, um, but what's the public expect from us also? And I think they watch way too much Chicago fire sometimes. And, you know, as soon as they turn the gas valve off in Hollywood, the you know 20 story building goes out and it's just not realistic uh, for shorter staff departments. You know, my own included, uh, we did the same thing. We said, OK, we're we're moving from uh, when I first got here, they had 75 foot lengths of hose, which you know to me are their own problem um, you know, for a lot of the reasons that we've discussed in the past. but also, uh, we went from inch and three quarter to deuce and a half. And, but we have the adaptability to be able to use that uh, nozzle section or that uh, nozzleman's bundle 
to be able to make it a little bit more uh, adaptable and and workable. And in sticking with the deuce and a half, it's again, the expectation of what we have. We know that we're not going to have a great amount of resources immediately on that fire. So if we do get that first line in service, it's not so much is to make entry into that compartment on that floor as much as it is to hold it to that compartment, maybe in the hallway, and get as many people out of that building as we possibly can until we get that second line in service. So yes, it's going to be more difficult to maneuver that line, but pretty much the expectation is go up as far as you can, make a stand, keep that fire in check. We might not extinguish it right away, and we want to get to it as soon as possible to get the fire out. Um, but you know, the next best thing for us is confinement. Um, and you know, and keeping it from getting worse if we if we can. So you know, we have to have that realistic expectation. And a couple of things too. Um, you know, we like you talked about for FDMY. A lot of these older places have smaller uh, compartments to them. They're tighter. They're more difficult to get around in. And uh, just like a railroad flat, you know, trying to get something around in there is going to be very very difficult. But the adaptations that we can make. Uh, to Mike's point, we can't just be the cut and paste fire department that, hey, here's a good looking SOP. Let's just change the header and the uh, and the logo on it and put it into practice. Because again, I think we set some unrealistic expectations, uh, not only for us, but the people that we're serving. What are we looking at as far as building systems also? What's, what's there to our advantage to be able to use? Uh, I'm very fortunate that one of the major uh, purveyors of some of the, the uh, mo- hotel motel high rises here, my first due, they have an excellent... Um, loss prevention and security team that does a lot to you know, let us know what's going on, clear things out, get people out of the way so we can get to work. Um, you know, so we have a, a good relationship there. And one thing, uh, I'll, I'll touch on two things actually really quickly, and then I want to you know, pitch it back over, is you, you look at some of the ad- adaptations that have taken place, uh, you know, Denver notwithstanding, because they've got just excellent um, foresight with things, and they'll try things. And if it works, great. If not, they adapt. They don't get stuck with the, the horse blinders on I want to say it was Virginia Beach. I know it was in the Mid-Atlantic, but uh, you know, I, I'm thinking it was Virginia Beach at one time. They started doing something because of staffing that the first uh, the first new engine company would go up in position, and everybody on that engine, including the the uh, Fado, the driver operator, unasked the engine and, and went upstairs to start getting that line in service. And then they would drop a pump operator off the second new engine to start pumping because in their in their philosophy at that time. It was going to take so long to get from grade level to where the fire floor was and set up that they had time to do that. So that was an adaptation. Not sure if they still do it or not. Um, and Bobby, you might remember the department. There were some departments that were actually having their firefighters run equipment in station uniforms up to the fire floor. They weren't going going in the hot zone, but because of the exact same things that you talked about, uh, even being in, in decent shape, it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's much, much different. You got a long ride to get to work. And, uh, you know, some of the other little adaptations you had discussed about looking at forcing doors. A lot of those are steel doors uh, in, in steel frames set in concrete, but you go two feet over and you can punch through the drywall into the kitchen and maybe put a nozzle in there, but then you've, you've reached a hole into the opening. So it's pros and cons, capabilities, limitations, you know, gains and losses. Um, one of the biggest things and the last thing I want to talk about before I kick it over um, and before we go around is, like it alluded to this also, is a lot of the smoke control and movement in the building. Um, you know, the smoke's going to be the biggest killer for people. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times these fires, you know, if we're lucky enough that they're compartmentalized and they don't auto expose to the outside or 
you know, the auto door closers haven't been tampered with and, you know, gets out into that common hallway. But, yeah, everyone carries chocks on their helmets. Yeah, they look really cool and that's great for an interior door. What happens when you have 20 doors on one floor that you've got to open? Um, you know, we started carrying roof kits up there. You know, a box of 16 penny nails goes a long way uh, you know, in, in the door jam. And what the uh, thing I wanted to talk about real quick, I don't know if you guys can see my little my little drawing here. Probably not. But you know, if, if you look at a, a high rise, I tell my people, I said, consider each and every day that things are going to be a little bit different in that same building. And let's say you have a fire, you know, somewhere up where this X is. Let's let's call it the 18th floor. So that's unit uh, 1810. So we go up there. Well, in in the morning, you know, when the sun's been beating on this side of the building, the stairwells, the elevator shafts, everything else are going to be heated up. That stack effect, that chimney effect that Mike's talking about. Well, the opposite side of the building's cooled down all night. So you might have, you know, smoke or fire on this floor. Over on this side, your smoke's drawing up. Over on the other side, it's actually a cold smoke phenomenon. It might be dropping down a few floors, you know, because those those different shafts and uh, stairwells, elevator shafts, or anything else, there's a, a big temperature difference in the two. So depending on the time of day, not just occupancy, but just structurally and you know, uh, physiologically how that building is going to be, you could have the same fire in the same unit three different times a day, and you could have a completely different reaction. So I'm very big into the muscle memory, doing the reps and sets, but you have to you you have a thinking uh, process also to go. All right, what do I got going on in this building? Um, you know, a lot of places. Well, Ocean City has a little bit, but not as much as Baltimore, obviously, for you know commercial high rises. Ocean City has a little bit of a, um, a hybrid where we have some of the floors of the high rises are restaurants, real estate offices, boutiques, uh, hair salons, all that kind of stuff. All the rest is residential. Um, some of these people are very uh, temporary guests anywhere from you know a few nights to a few weeks, have no familiarity with the building whatsoever. Uh, we have language barriers a lot because uh, at the time, pre, pre-COVID, a lot of J1 students. So you might have uh, somebody who's in charge of security for the building, for example, who English is a second language and you know, wh- wherever they hail from is certainly not my pr- primary language. And we're trying to communicate to do the best we can. So we have a lot of challenges. Um, and like Bobby said, once you get to that upper floor, yes, it becomes more of a residential uh, firefighting force. But the process from when we pull up you know, next to the sidewalk in the FDC to when we get to the upper floor is a huge, huge challenge for us. So there's just a couple of points I wanted to share real quick. And, um, you know, Ben from, I know in Salisbury, you guys have gotten more uh, buildings that would be in the mid-rise and high-rise category than, you know, from several years ago. I think your tallest building at one point was uh, downtown. So it was like seven stories. But, um, you know, with the, with the college and some of the other areas, what are some of the challenges that you all have faced since with that growth in the city and some of the redevelopment? Yeah, right. Right now, um, that building downtown, seven stories, is still our tallest on um, on Main Street uh, on the plaza. Um, there is talks of um, like the downtown revitalization and, and adding in a thirteen story high rise. Um, so the 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 concerns that we have um, and the the issues that we run into are, are the same as every department. You know, the staffing, um, water supply, as they were. Um, working on these buildings now that they're going to um, upgrade and renovate, they found some of the old original wooden pipes um, for the for the original hydrant system for the city. So that's pretty cool. But what are they what are they doing to reinforce that as they expand it? 
Um, one of the things that I think we've mentioned before is that as, excuse me, as the city expands throughout um, their jurisdiction and their space where they annex stuff um, and developers uh, build developments and that kind of stuff, are they expanding to help serve the fire service as well? So are they putting in um, the hydrant systems? Are they, are they adding, are they making sure the streets are wide enough that the turns are um, wide enough for our apparatus? Um, so it's that kind of stuff that, you know, I think every department runs into. Uh, one of the things that we do when when we go on scene and we have we have a confirmed working high rise fire, we automatically call a second alarm. So that manpower that we're talking about, we're already getting uh, two engines in a truck and two medic units. Um, you know, we're starting the additional resources right away. Um, so that's that's one of the things that that I really appreciate and I, I like from our policy on SOPs or on high rise ops. Um, but, but again, like the same, the same struggles that everybody else is having with high rises is, is what we're having too in Salisbury. Uh, we're fortunate that we just got another safer grant. So that'll give us another 12 people for another three years. So that'll be a huge help. Um, Chief Tall was, and, and the administration was influential and, um, and very successful and the last safer grant that we got in the city had, has, is keeping those 12 on full time. So that's great. Um, you know, the, the work that they're doing to, to increase our staffing is awesome. So we're getting there. Um, you know, it's, it's slow and steady, but, but they're, they're making great progress. So um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about and listening to some podcasts and uh, reading some other stuff on high rise stuff, knowing that we were going to have this conversation is, um, one of the things that Bobby had mentioned is, you know, you get to the fire floor and you look down the hallway and you see that there's smoke filled uh, or it's that the fire is extending into the hallway. Like, you know where the fire is. Like you don't have to go force every door to figure out where it is. The fire's in the, in the room that the door's open. All right. So, um, you know, it, or it's, it's failed. So, um, you know, use, you know, as you see that, you know, take a second to think about it. Um, and, and kind of remember that. Uh, the other thing is, is that as you guys are, as we're going on our medical runs in, in Ocean City or you're going on EMS calls, you know, that we've said this multiple times on every type of building that we go to. That's that's part of your pre-plan for those buildings. Um, one of the other things that that we've talked about is using rope and stretching from your standpipe to the, to the apartments and seeing how far, you know, that 200 feet will get you. So if we go to one of those buildings where Bobby was talking, there's a 300 foot hallway, you know, which apartments do we get to with our 200 feet from which side? Um, so again, as you're kind of, as you're responding into that alarm, you know, which stairwell do I want to use? What's my attack stairwell? What do I want to have as my evacuation stairwell? You know, what else do I need to know about this floor that um, is going to help make things hopefully a little easier for us? So just want to mention those few things. Um, we're coming up on 50 minutes. Um, so if we'll kick it around the horn one more time, I know Bobby wanted to talk about nozzle selection and um, tip size. So um, Mike, we want to kick, kick it back down to you for, for some thoughts. Uh, yeah. You know, and I think we're all kind of on the same page. Um, you know, it's a, and I don't want to take too much time because I want Bobby to get, uh, get in some more of this. Uh, this is quality stuff. But uh, I, I think the, the main thing, and we're all in agreement on, is that speed is of the essence, uh, not only in, um, in getting people there, getting the resources there, just as you alluded to, Ben, where 
you know, uh, in a lot of metropolitan areas, we'll strike out a second uh, upon confirmation of a uh, of a high-rise fire. But the speed in which we get our resources there and then the speed in which we get that first attack line in service, uh, I, I, I truly believe that those are paramount um, in being successful with this. Now, of course, there's a lot of other little things that come into play, uh, you know, and we've alluded to those too, where we, you know, we talk about stack effect and, uh, and you know, flow path. But, um, you know, we can negate a lot of those issues from becoming a serious problem if we are um, efficient and fast. So with that said, I'm going to just send it right back over to Bobby. I don't want to chew up any more of that time because uh, I want to hear what he has to say on, on nozzles. Oh, thanks, Mike. Yeah. Um, so like I said, we did uh, over a year's testing, uh, more than that, actually. I know, I know, uh, you know Trevor, you know, you work with us and, and JD and Jay Lawson and some other guys. We've done tremendous amounts of hose testing nozzle testing pressures but what we did in the high rises was we focused on what does that pre-1993 standard mean to us and what it means is that we have to look at that 65 psi so our target was 70 psi for our lowest flows and our target was to keep it above 200 gallons a minute after lots of discussion um so uh the two inch with two and a half inch couplings was capable of doing that and the reason i say 70 not 65 is we always hook up the floor below so you hook up the floor below, you're going to get five PSI more because it's, you know, 10 or 12 feet below that floor. And that's your head pressure thing. So that's why we use 70. Um, what was interesting about it was as we were testing it, you know, when you think about smaller nozzles, uh, smaller tip sizes, like your one inch uh, and your inch and 16th, you, you think about less GPM. And it's a big concern in the fire service because we just talked about we want to have heavy hitters for, for these high-rise fires, especially the doors left open, it's wind-driven, all those things. By the way, if we ever have fires in Ocean City, they're always wind-driven on the coast. <laughs> they're never not. So um, we could just expect them to be a wind-driven event for us. Um, so when we looked at that, um, you know, that is correct. Um, but one thing that we didn't really look at until we started really honing in on what we wanted for our high-rise package was um, the smaller the tip, the less the flow, but the further the reach. Um and the smaller the tip, the less the flow, but the higher velocity of the stream. So what does that mean in firefighting? That means that if you've got a 150-foot hallway, um, when we went to the flow testing part of it, um, when we also check the stream reach, in other words, where the breakover rate is where your stream gets halfway up and starts to fall down. Well, if you go past your breakover rate, you can never apply water to the ceiling. It's just going to fall back down to the floor and you're going to have not a very effective stream. So what we found was two things. First of all, we tested with the inch and 16th and the inch and an eighth for a higher flow. Uh, The other problem we ran into is remember our our goal was 200 gallons a minute or more. Uh, The problem was because of the, 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 the the larger your your diameter, the less pressures in your hose, your pressure is created by your nozzle tip basically. Um, and that's that's a controlling factor. So the larger that hole is, the less pressure you have in your line. We actually showed less flows with an inch and sixteenth and an inch and eighth tip than we did with a one inch tip because of the kinking problem in the stairs. We stretched from the stairs, and you'd get multiple kinks, and and just didn't have enough people to chase those kinks out. Uh, when we went to the two inch tip, uh, it started to minimize those. So 
each one of those lines actually got you to around 200 gallons a minute because less kinking with that more back back pressure with a one inch tip. The other side of it was that one inch tip had a tremendously longer reach. So our thought process was if we want to cool that ceiling, if they left that door open, we want that stream to reach down there. You know, we, we have a saying in the fire service, you can flow a deck gun forever, but if it's not hitting the fire, it's doing absolutely nothing for you, you know? And that's kind of the scenario in a high rise where you got to make your way downstairs. So we ended up with a one inch tip, but we did a breakaway. So it goes a one inch tip and stacked on top of an inch and an eighth tip. So the idea with that is if you get to the hallway and get to the room and you open the door and it's wind driven, it's really killing you. We'll close that door back. We'll spin that one inch tip off because now we don't need that distance anymore. We made the apartment. We can do larger flow uh, from there. And our, our, our final goal on our standpipe operations in Ocean City was we tested it at 70, but we found our best results for uh, minimizing kinks and things was at 80. So we actually, our policy right now is to flow our standpipe to floor below at 80 because you're going to have some kinking and some problems as it kind of goes along, and it helped out with that. So that, that was how we ended up at an inch. Now, listen, the conversations down in the high-rise uh, conference were very much about inch and 16th and inch and an eighth, and a lot of the jurisdictions kind of went with that. This was our, our personal experience with, you know, how we were stretching the lines um, that we ended up at, in that particular configuration. So I feel confident that ours is a, is a decent, a good uh, middle ground, a more maneuverable line, um, and also a nice reach and the ability to kind of up your flow um, if you had to. So that's kind of why we ended up at, in Ocean City the only other thing I'll, I'll touch on real quick is is what kind of what kind of high rise pack configuration do you want? So there's two basic ones across the country. The most common ones are either the Denver load or the New York City fold. They call it. Um, there is a third one we saw uh, Chicago, which is a very very nice fold too. Actually, it's very very simple. Um, but we'll, those two are the ones predominantly. We decided with the Denver load um, specifically because it's a single wide stack. Um, with a double wide stack, you have to carry it on your shoulder. We have the option of putting that hose on our air pack um, when we have that single configuration. So for us being so understaffed, um, we can carry a tool and a section of hose and also use those rails because as you start climbing steps with your gear and your equipment and your, you know, your extra 75 pounds or hundred pounds of stuff, um, Pulling up the stairs is very important to, to make it. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so pulling your way up the stairs, we always, everything we did, we try to make sure there was a hand free. So that's where we ended up in Ocean City. Um, you know, it's not, it's not been tested on a working fire yet. So that's, that remains to be seen. Um, but we feel relatively confident that we've come to a good middle ground, a more maneuverable line. Um, and that's really it. So, you know, Merry Christmas to everybody. Um, you could go on about high rise operations for days and days and days. So we're just scratching the surface of, of what we need to be able to do well at a high rise fire, but Merry Christmas, everybody. And I hope everybody has a healthy and safe new years. And, um, it, it's great talking with all you guys. You guys are phenomenal. Trevor, you want to wrap us up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one last quick thing. And uh, as Bobby had very adequately said, we're just scratching the surface of some of the high rise operations. But uh, really, it's not the, the fun or the sexy part of high rise operations, but really make sure that you understand how these addressable panels work. Um, there's a lot of great information on these panels. And when you scroll through, you know, a lot of times you're just seeing the last event that's that's ticked off on the on the screen. And you can see a lot about uh, 
in, in conjunction with what I talked about earlier, where the uh, floor of origin might be versus where your smoke spread is going. And sometimes it's confusing. You see something on the 18th floor is the floor of origin, and now you have um, detectors and devices going off on, on the 20th, and you have something going off on, on the 16th. You're like, okay, do I have a drop-down fire? What do I have? But understanding how these work, um, and especially with some of the staged evacuations of these systems are pretty darn smart at this point. So they're not um, you know, putting 500, 1,500, 2,000 people down the stairwells at one time. Because like we've all managed many, 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 many times, we get to that high-rise gig and we have people start inundating us. Uh, the first couple of, of crews that are in, hey, uh, my grandmother's up on the 15th floor and we try to get her in the stairwell. Now she's on the stairs between the 15th and 16th. So between the people we try to shelter in place uh, versus the ones who tried to self-extricate. And now they are in trouble because you know, we're, we're running probably more EMS calls out of high-rise gigs than we are uh, actual fires in them sometimes. And I say that kind of uh, half-kiddingly, half-seriously, but look how many look how many medical calls we usually generate out of a high-rise call and that our resources are already taxed. So trying to work a little smarter instead of harder sometimes um, <clears throat> definitely goes a long way. But um, you know, that, that little you know, nugget I wanted to throw out there real quick, but uh, definitely want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and thank all those folks who are um, working to keep us safe over the Christmas and New Year's holidays. I know we have not only the folks in, in the fire service and our dispatch and law enforcement and the hospitals, but also our folks serving in the military uh, domestically and overseas. You know, we thank everybody for um, you know keeping us safe while we're able to be home with our families. I know all of you on this screen have spent uh, you know many years uh, working these holidays. Ben, you, know, you with a young family now, um, you know, understand every bit of it because you try to capture all the uh, the family time that you can. But there's got to be people who are uh, working out there on the street. So, you know, we uh, pray for you. We want you to stay safe and uh, have a happy and healthy holiday season. And uh, again, if you're celebrating Festivus, we're going to move on to the feats of strength next. So we'll get into that. But Merry Christmas, everybody. And just as as we're signing off. Merry Christmas, guys, uh, everybody that's tuning in watching. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we hope you guys have a wonderful uh, Christmas holiday and um, we'll see you in the new year. We've uh, Trevor just recently, we were we were chatting the other day, uh, has reached out to some some awesome special guests. So uh, we've got some work to do to see if we can uh, nail down some dates for those guys. Um, but looking forward to a great year. Um, January 1st, the registration for the Delmarva Fire Conference opens up. Um, and again, Mike and I, we have, we're, we have the opportunity to uh, present at that. So we're excited for that. Um, so check that out. Should be should be pretty good from everything that we've seen. Uh, looks like they got some good people coming in to talk. So um, again, Merry Christmas. We hope you guys have a wonderful season and we'll see you in the new year. Cheers, guys.